With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, so normally I don't do an intro, but I'm about to interview one of my all-time favorite actors and comedians, Paul Reiser. He actually has three shows on TV right now, one on Netflix, one on Amazon, one on Hulu. We'll talk all about them. But I'm doing this intro because, as you could probably hear, my throat's a little bit sore. But even given that, I get so excited about these guests that I power through and I want to do the interview, and I'm grateful you're listening. So let's start the interview. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. It's also one of those things, though, you start off, and because you love it so much, you appreciate the subtleties of what's good, so you know you're bad. So you, have, uh-huh. so you know you're bad for a really long time, <laughs> and yet you pursue it obsessively. <laughs> Am I correct? Yeah, well, but it's it's interesting because my recollection is it's sort of what protects you when you're starting as a comic. I think you're protected by this embryonic ignorance that I think if you knew how bad you were, you wouldn't dare go up. Something is in denial or, or you're just not smart enough to know it. I remember it's 17, 18, 18 when I went on for the first time. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be great because that's the first time, but I'm going to think, I'm pretty good. This is okay. And then, you know, you look back now and cringe. Oh, my God, really? I went out there? I knew nothing. You're protected with a sort of blind enthusiasm and ignorance of youth. And one of the things I love about stand-up is it's a moving target. You never... It's like the horizon, you know, you keep moving towards it and then it keeps moving and you, you get better and you say, oh, if I, as soon as I can do that, then I'll be made. And then you get to that point and go, Whew, there's so much more I have to learn. And you just, you never, ever feel like you've arrived in the best sense. I'm so excited to have Paul Reiser here. Paul, I feel like I've been watching you on TV and movies since since I was born, practically. That's, not to make you sound old, because you're not that much older than me, to be honest. But uh, but it was interesting that your parents had the TV right there at your birth, so that you could be indoctrinated. It's true. Into all the splendor of me. It's true. <laughs> By the way, I don't think TV is such a bad thing for little kids. I think it exposes them to thousands of stories at yeah. an early age. Although I was watching, I, I saw a woman the other day with an infant, and she must, the little baby must have been may not even a year, and was just sitting, staring into an iPad, and it was glowing on her face, and I just thought, it just looked wrong. You shouldn't be that, that uh, um, focused on a thing that's shooting light at your head. Uh, so, yes, TV's good, but I, I actually worry, I sometimes when I see, infant, you know, really, really young creatures with an electronic thing in their face. I went, probably not great. I like to start off with a really boring cautionary thing for babies, which is your demo, I understand. Only babies listen to, to this. But don't you think people say this about radio and yeah, TV? I don't know about radio, but I remember, what were they used to call it? The, uh, the boob tube. Right? Yeah. Like for idiots, it'll make you stupid. It's like, well, what if you're watching Edward R. Murrow? You know, what if you're watching, you know, you don't. It, uh, or I Love Lucy. Yeah. Well, anything. I, I, I think uh, you know, all things in moderation. My son just got a, a this VR kit, and he puts it on his head, and it's like, and it's really cool, and he made me do it. I'm wow, it's really fun. But I'm thinking, this can't be good for the brain. You're just shooting stuff into your eyes, and uh, and not reading a book. <laughs> I think so, unless the nature of storytelling changes. But first, I want to—I want to introduce you, you a little bit. Introduce me, because I'm not familiar with my own work. First off, uh, you know, on TV, Two and a Half Men. Probably most nope, people know. Never, it. never was on Two and a Half Men. Wait, what's the? I was on a show called My Two Dads. Oh, uh, My Two Dads. I got confused. So Sorry there's no, about there's that. No half. <laughs> then, uh, Mad About You was your main thing. You're over on over 160 episodes of that. Uh, that's how. I saw you every week on Mad About You. Uh, after you were born. After I was born. Yeah. 
Uh, you were on Diner before that. That kind of kick-started your career and yeah. all of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you've been on, uh, you were a stand-up. You were on Tonight Show with Johnny Carson many times, which led to, uh, right now you have three series, one on Netflix, one on Amazon, one on Hulu. You're in Stranger Things. You're on, you're in uh, Red Oaks on Amazon. And on Hulu, you created and wrote uh, the amazing series, There's Johnny, about kind of like, Johnny Carson meets the Larry Sanders show. Like I just, <laughs> I just love this show. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an odd uh, um, thing to describe. And people say, "Well, what is it like?" I said, "Well, you have to see it." And almost to a person, everybody who 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 I hear from I go, "Wow, it's not what I expected." It's like that's what I was telling. You. It's hard to because it's not quite a comedy. It's a lot of heavy drama, but and it's certainly not a drama. And but it's. Um, and and people said, oh, so it's Larry Sanders. I said, no, it's not Larry Sanders at all. It's not because Larry Sanders is not like Johnny Carson's. Not really. Johnny nobody Johnny. plays Johnny Carson. Nobody plays him, and he's not really in it. It's not about him, but he's the backdrop, and the show takes place in his show. The take the show behind the scenes of his show. And as a kid watching the Johnny Carson show, that always seemed like the coolest place to be. And there was a vibe about it. That was very over the time, sort of the uh, Playboy after dark. It felt, you know, like especially in the early '70s when he moved out to California. Johnny, the Tonight Show felt like, well, it's just cool. People are sitting there drinking and smoking, and and actors drop by and big stars drop by, and it just felt it's like a party. It felt like a party, and it's a different, a very different uh, feel than than like you know Jimmy Fallon has the Tonight Show now, and it's great, and he's really made it his own. But we're in a different point, and and. Uh, it was it was a more relaxed party. It was more about people having people over, and you'd sit and they, and they were longer. They were ninety minutes for the for, for a long time, uh, till I think through the early seventies, and so somebody would sit and they would chat for 30, 40 minutes. They're like, well, you don't have that anymore. Or, and guests would stay. So you talked with, you'd be in a conversation with the people after you. Um, that's not the way it is anymore. So it was a very different feel, but. I, as a kid, that was where you wanted to be. And if you had any inkling, like I did, that, gee, comedy might be where I'm heading, that was certainly your mecca. You know, you watch every night. And Johnny loved comics. You know, he was, he really gave birth to a lot of people who probably would not have been understood elsewhere, like Albert Brooks and Steve Martin. It's like, they're really... George Carlin. Yeah, George Carlin, for sure. Roddy Dangerfield. Roddy Dangerfield yeah. was, was an amazing regular on Johnny Carson. Yeah, for sure. And Johnny loved them all. Stephen Wright years later, but but I, I mentioned Albert and and um, and Steve Martin because they were doing something so different and it was so non-mainstream that they, if it didn't have somebody, um, uh, um, I don't say mentoring, but uh, uh, championing them. I don't, I, you know, Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks, I've I've heard, uh, never it wasn't like he worked out his stuff and then did it on the Tonight Show. He tried it on the Tonight Show. A lot of things, these brilliant off the wall things that he did for the first time on the show, um, and you'd see Johnny just, you know, really eating it up. So he was a big enthusiast enthusiast for for comics, and he would uh, always insist that the audience. Uh, rise to that occasion. He always used to say, I'm glad you're in a good mood tonight. Here's a young guy making his first appearance. And he always would say that. He always say, I'm glad the audience is in a good mood tonight. And the audience is thinking, well, we're not particularly in a good mood, but we will be now because you told us to. So he he really made it uh, comfortable for, 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 for newcomers. I think also he had a natural stand-up way about him. Like, he certainly had the delivery... He certainly had the yeah. ability to kind of control the crowd. It was his crowd anyway because they're coming to see his yeah. show. So that gave him a little extra benefit. But he had the the timing and the nuances to to be a stand-up himself. Oh, for totally. Uh, and I, I, I was always sorry I never got to see him do stand-up because he would do it uh, in in um, in Vegas for a while. Um, and, and I never got to see him. And, and I, I remember hearing the appeal was, oh, he was a little naughtier than he would be on TV. You know, tell some off-color jokes and stuff. So that was appealing, the idea of seeing him. But he was off color on TV too. Like, yeah. you showed it in in the series. Yes, where he respond. You know, he's well. They, one of the things there were so many qualities that he had that made him unique and gave him the longevity. And one of those qualities, which is he he is that he straddled uh, a lot of fences. He was hip, and yet he was also very comfortable. He was Midwestern, so so the 
people in the Midwest were comfortable with the guy that they knew, and yet he was really into jazz, and he knew his music, and he certainly was an avant-garde comic. Uh, I mean, he knew his avant-garde comedy, but he he made it. It was it his show was welcoming to a wide spectrum. It wasn't uh, anti-establishment. It wasn't ir- ironic. It was just pure entertainment, and he straddled that line. He was very safe and very uh, sort of conservative, but there was also a twinkle in his eye. There was a little bit, there's a lot of sexual innuendo and, and uh, part of the fun and going back and look at these, these clips now, it's like, whoa, that would, you wouldn't air that now. You just, you know, whether it's making fun of the, you know, and he'd have, have the actress on and the extra tight dress. And then he would do three or four jokes to Ed McMahon. Like, wow, that's really objectifying and, and not cool by today's standards. How hard was it to get the archival footage that you aired? That, well, that's what was one of the things from the beginning, my, my partner, David Simon and I knew that we wanted to do, and we kind of thought, well, we'll just get those clips. And, uh, so to do that, we needed the cooperation of Carson company and, um, who holds, you know, the license for all those. And uh, that's what actually took it a, took this show a long time to to come to fruition. We we started pitching it in like two thousand two or three or something when Johnny was still around, and uh, his company was very they were very protective and they hadn't they hadn't even yet released DVDs and 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 so they were just sitting on it. Finally, when they said, "Yeah, come on, let's do it," uh, then they gave us full access. And it's all, you know, it's all archived. So you can put in any act, any word. You can say, how about Vietnam jokes? And you come up and here's the 400 Vietnam jokes or whatever. So uh, that made the picking easier or easier to find. Um, but it was also, sometimes it was an embarrassment of riches. Like, well, where do you go? Because sometimes we could just pick any clip and just say, you know, whatever show they were making that week and there it is, it's up on the monitors and while our story is going on in the front. Other times we had a couple of episodes where the clip, we knew of a clip and we worked backwards. We said, okay, we love that clip. How do we get to that? What, uh, and that was part of the, the magic and sort of the Forrest Gump quality of it is how do you, if our characters affect what's happening on the 40-year-old footage, that's really cool. So, you know, we had... We had we that was that, a great one where, where uh, I'll, I'll let you describe The dog? The, the one where he falls. Yeah, we had it we, where... Um, and we totally fabricated that. We just, yeah, we, the, the kid runs out and, and uh, has to hand something to Johnny and he trips. And we just shot our guy tripping and then we cut to Johnny looking down. Uh, but nobody actually tripped. There was no, so there was, we just totally fabricated that moment. But there was one episode we did um, and we had remembered a, uh, a commercial. They used to do a lot of spots, live spots, and Ed McMahon holding up uh, you know, the product. And it was for Alpo Dog Food. And I remembered there was a really, it wasn't an outtake, but it was just a funny, un, unplanned moment where he puts the, he sells this wonderful meat product and meat byproducts and he puts it out and the dog won't eat it. And so it looks pretty bad. The dog is running away from the food. And Johnny Carson came in and saved the day and he just came down like a dog and walked on his knees and started pretending to eat the food and then humping Ed's leg. And it was really a totally, obviously, improv moment. And it was, uh... It took something that was going to go bad into something that was great and memorable. So we said, well, how do we work to that? So we wrote a, our story that the kid was in charge of the dog. and Because why, why didn't the dog eat? There must have been a reason that dog didn't eat. Well, let's say that our knucklehead kid did something wrong. And, uh, and why did you, like, again, the, the eighth episode of this was a, a pure documentary about the Carson Times. Why did you decide to also make a sitcom for the first seven episodes? Why don't you just well, focus the, the, on the it's documentary? It's a seven episode. Uh, uh, that documentary is is just sort of an ancillary, ancillary thing, supplementary thing. Uh, it's a seven episodes um, show, and uh, I think the documentary you're talking about, which I actually <laughs> recently saw, was just sort of, you know, sort of a, what do you call it? A, a supplement, basically, where a lot of comics were talking about what Johnny meant to them, and and uh, it was great those years. And, um, no, but the, the, the seven episodes is exactly the show we had in mind. And it was always, like I said, it doesn't quite fall into a category, which is what I love about it, you know, and things, most of the things that I, in my head, when I write things, they're, they're, they're never quite a comedy. They're never quite drama. I, I, I like, I like writing and I like watching things that are, that straddle those worlds, you know, um, do you find studios want you to categorize this is a 
This is a rom com. This is a sitcom. Well, this is a drama. To some extent, to some extent, but certainly those 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 uh, categories have blended and widened and 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 grown since there's so many platforms and so many streaming places you can do it that there are a lot of shows that would not have made it. Uh, would you would not have seen? You know, Stranger Things would I don't think would have been on. 10 years ago, even six years ago, um, there are places that you can do a seven-episode series. You know, there's Johnny. If 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 it turns out we only did this one season, it really holds up and it looks like a full arc. It looks like a movie, you know, went from one point and brings characters to another. But my goal, is hopefully, is that we get to do some more. I hope you do a second season. I want to keep following. Yeah, thank you. They're, 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 we had great actors. I mean, and, and uh, we had Jane Levy, who just... Uh, startles me she's so talented and 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 uh just special and ian nelson is plays this, jane, jane's joy and jane levy plays the character of joy who's this beverly hills raised very complicated um her father in the show her father is a big hollywood uh, agent and and so she's been in show business raised in show business and with all the drama and complexities of that and the 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 other lead is uh, Ian Nelson plays this kid Andy who's literally came off the farm in Nebraska thinking he had a job uh, because he sent away for a picture for his dad his dad liked Johnny Carson and they sent him a nice little form letter which she misread as like come on out we welcome you you have a job so he got on a bus and he gets out there and went, oh and he doesn't have a job at all but because he was such a good natured kid everybody took a shine to him uh, they kept him around and now, now let's Let's reel it back a little bit in the sense that the Johnny, you know, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was so important to every up and coming stand up at that time, including you. Basically, if you got on Johnny Carson and then you got to sit down next to him, yeah. your career was supposedly set. Yeah. It, well, it was definitely the stamp of approval um, in a way that uh, no show today can be. I mean, if you get on, if you're just starting out or and you get on, Anybody, like Jimmy Fallon or Colbert or, or Conan, it's great and it's a great feather in your cap, but it doesn't. Um, it, it gets you on the club set. Yeah, it, it does moves not you get forward. You a TV show. Yeah, well, not that being on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson necessarily. There, there were instances where people rocketed to fame. You know, uh, Freddie Prinze, you know, was seen on that, and boom, then he had a sitcom. Um, it happened sometimes, but it certainly was a a uh, a universal currency. I know my parents, you know. Was sort of scratching their heads, like, why would you be a comedian? What they want you to be? Well, anything else, <laughs> uh, but you know, a normal job, you know, and and, and uh, um, it's such a risky thing. There's no reason for anybody to think that they're ever going to make it. And and from their eyes, and I get it, I understand it, you know, now as a parent. But so they were watching. Gee, went to college, and now he's going into the city, and he's just hanging out at clubs, making four dollars, and you know, and. It just there's no real there's no paycheck there's no seemingly uh <laughs> no really sign of potential or not, that we don't see we don't see like there are no benchmarks you can go away are you up for the rate are you up for the next position and you know it's an unimaginable world to them but once you're on the johnny carson show they literally go oh okay johnny liked him look at that a we can tell our friends and relatives he's on the He's on the Tonight Show, but also when they literally see and on my first time, Johnny, I didn't go over to the couch, but he gave me. He actually started to walk over and, and shake my hand, and then the cameras cut. I went, "Oh, I wish they had show that." But that mo, just that movement that Johnny was, you know, giving me the thumbs up and walking to shake my hand, spoke volumes. They all went, "Whoa, Johnny!" Like, did I agents liked you. call the next day? Huh? Did agents call you the next day? No, you know, I don't think it was. I don't think I had that kind of uh, impact, but it certainly was. Like graduating college, it's like okay, I now I finished my you know even more. It's like finishing your PhD. It's like, whew, okay, that's behind me. I am now officially one of the people who's been on Tonight Show. Because strangers will go, hey, I never heard of you. You ever done the Tonight Show? And when you can say yes, I go okay. Still never heard of you, but I heard of that. I mean, there's pros and cons to that, right? Like right now, there's no one gatekeeper who could make or break you, which is a good thing too. It's more up to the individual to kind of strive for success. And back then, I think you had to be on The Tonight Show, more or less? Uh, I guess. I, I don't know that you had to be. And as, as I say, it certainly wasn't the case that being on there automatically opened up every door for you. But it was very widely seen. And it was 
50 million viewers. Yeah, I mean, yes. On any given night, he had much bigger numbers than what often considered a hit now because there were fewer shows. But also, he was there, and it was a very, there's a comfort factor. You know, he was, you know, things rarely stay put at, at all. Now, ballplayers don't spend their careers on a, on a team, you know, that you, that you can grow up with. Johnny was there for 30 years, and so we literally grew up with him, and we literally went to sleep with him. We, you know, you put it on, and you fall asleep, and he used to joke about people are sleeping during me or people having sex during me or people not having sex because of me. He was integrated into your life because this seems so obvious, but it's huge that when in 72, there was no VCRs. You literally, there was no, that we hadn't invented the recording. So you had to stay awake and uh, that concept is gone, right? It's like, there's no, you can't miss any show now. You say, hey, did you see uh, Fallon? Uh, no, I'll watch it. I'll watch it later. I'll watch it on my phone and in also, the gym. I think late night shows are clip driven so they know that they could take the clips and put them yes. on YouTube and some of them will go viral and that wasn't the case that wasn't the case it was literally if something wonderful happened it was that water cooler moment that people always talk about the next day oh did you see that and, oh no I missed it well it's gone you can't see it so so what was that uh, and I want to talk about Red Oaks also but what was that initial appeal of stand up like what what drove you into this thing that didn't have any benchmarks that your family would be against that that was yeah. hard I you know what uh, I, I, it's an interesting thing. I think you, you're sort of drawn to something or you're not. And, uh, you know, people sometimes, when, you know, young comics will well, how do you ask for advice. And, and I, I found myself thinking, I found myself offering a piece of advice somebody gave me once after college when I was thinking I was going to do something else. And they said, if you can do anything else, do it. That's how hard this is. And I remember in that case, I went, okay, forget it. I'm not going to do that. And for a comedian, it's like, I think you just, you can't do anything else. You're drawn to it. I, I just, when I was a little kid, uh, you know, I would watch the Ed Sullivan show. So I watched the Beatles. I didn't think I'm going to grow up and be a Beatle. I don't think I grew up at all thinking I'm going to be a rock and roll guy. I do, do remember watching the comics. And then that, that spoke to me at a different kind of level. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't able to put my finger on it. And then somewhere when I was about 15, it started just becoming uh, more formed. I was, you know, a big a big moment for me was when somebody introduced me to the uh, two thousand year old man records, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. That was sort of like the Rosetta Stone. It's like, oh my goodness, that okay, that just went deep deep into my bones. But also there were new emerging comics, so it wasn't necessarily the Alan King and Buddy Hackett who I loved and I used to love watching, but suddenly you're seeing George Carlin, Robert Klein, people that are speaking to you on a, on a, a more relatable level. Also, because I'm older, I'm not eight, now you're 15, 16. So um, I don't know, it just always, it, it's sort of like I'm, it's something on a cellular level. It's just like you're drawn to it or you're not. It's also one of those things, though. You start off, and because you love it so much, you appreciate the subtleties of what's good, so you know you're bad. <laughs> so you uh, so you know you're bad for a really long time, <laughs> and yet you pursue it obsessively. Am and I by correct? the way, make sure the audience understands, when you say you're bad, you mean the generic you, the, the generic universal you. you. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's it's interesting because my recollection is it, it's sort of what protects you you know, like when you're when you're when you're in the womb, you're actually underwater, but you're 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 given the tools to survive, even that though you shouldn't be able to be living in water. Similarly, when you're starting as a comic, I think you're protected by this em this this embryonic uh, ignorance that I think if you knew how bad you were, you wouldn't dare go up. So you're you're something is in denial or, or you're just not smart enough to know it. I remember at 17, 18, 18, when I went on for the first time, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be great because that's the first time, but I'm going to think, I'm pretty good. It's okay. And then, you know, you look back now and cringe. Oh my God, really? I went out there. I knew nothing. Uh, you're protected with a sort of blind uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, ignorance of youth. And one of the things I love about stand-up is uh, it's a moving target. You never, it's like the horizon, you know, you keep, you, you keep moving towards it and it keeps moving. And like you, you get better and you say, oh, if I, as soon as I can do that, then I'll be made. And then you get to that point and go, whew, there's so much more I have to learn. And you just, you never ever feel 
like you've arrived in the best sense. I don't think, not that it makes you unsettled. It's just that you turn a corner and you go, oh yeah, there's a lot, there's, a, there's hopefully there's more levels. So, you know, you can, you can write better, you can edit better, you can write deeper, you can come up with something more meaningful than your first 10 minutes, which you're just happy to get a laugh. And, um, you know, and I, I, t- how, how important is meaningful? Cause like you take, let's say stand up comedy and you, you have everybody ranging from Stephen Wright to, you know, more modern comics who, who, who speak about, let's call it the, the truth in their lives. Mm-hmm. And how important is meaningful in there? I don't, I don't, it's a, it's a good question. I don't think it's a necessity. I, I think there, I think it's a personal thing. You know, Stephen Wright is brilliant, and it's not, uh, 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 it, you know, super brilliant, super brilliant, and 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 it's not necessarily self-revelatory, and it's not necessarily meaningful, but those are beautiful crafted jokes. Each one, it's just like wow, you know, Rodney Dangerfield. There's nothing meaningful in there. Well, if you want, you can actually find some levels of reality of of you know if you, his miserable life and why he felt that I get no respect. It's like there his, is there, his persona might be close to truth. Yes, it came from a truth, but the joke, you know, you're watching a joke master and he was a master. So that's great. There's there's, you know, it's like music. It's like, you know, Bach is great and Springsteen is great and hip hop is great. Like they have nothing to do with each other, but they'll each work on their level. So uh there's some guys that are, you know, you can watch some comics that are deep and meaningful, uh, not making you laugh. And so you may not care for them. Somebody else may go Wow. Okay, I, I don't mind taking that little detour into the deeper thing. So it's all personal. I mean, so for, I know for me, you never want to set your goal and say I want to be meaningful. I want to make no. Your good job is to go up there and make people laugh. But I know from my my own um, inner, you know, uh, my own compass. It's like if I hit a bit that's a little closer to the truth, it just feels different. Like oh man, that one felt good mm-hmm. and. And it got a deeper laugh. So when you do something that's really personal, and and I don't know that I could have done this at twenty five, but now you talk about something about being married, or, or you shed some, you share something that's universal. People get it, and it's deeper. So if you do a, if you hit hit it right, and you do a really smart, funny, insightful joke that's true about being married or having kids, and fear of having kids, and fear of messing up your kids. It just already is deeper than the best joke about the weather that you can come up with. The joke, the weather may be quicker and funnier, but it's not ringing uh, true. And I don't know that it all has to be. So if I'm doing an hour or whatever set, you know, you pepper it in. And some stuff I go, well, that's, that's I'm getting a little bit more uh, deep here. And these that's just a funny, silly ass joke. And how, uh, I mean, I have so many questions about this, but you've been one of the biggest TV stars of all time. You, you have all these shows that you're still either starring in, writing in, creating. Um, do you feel at your core, though, there's that stand-up, that, like, yeah. at heart, you're a stand-up yeah. comedian? Yeah, for sure. And it, it's interesting because I, 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 that's, that's really all I thought I wanted to be. Um, when I, you know, I was in college and I got the bug for it and I, and I would go to the clubs in the summer and then after college i just said well that's what i'm going to do and i wanted to be a stand-up i didn't have this thing of i want to be an actor i want to be a tv get a tv show none of that um and and my idols as kids were my idols but the people that i was drawn to were comics i didn't love you know Lawrence olivier i love george carlin and 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 david brenner robert klein and uh and buddy hackett and mel brooks and woody allen they were and cosby and they were all comics that that's who i uh and the Beatles on the other side. But um, there was never, I never wanted to particularly need to be an actor. And so when things started happening, suddenly I got a job in Diner. And so like, oh, I guess I'm an actor. And then, well, that led to all these other things. How'd you get the job in Diner? That was just a free movie. Huh? Yeah, that was literally just, they, they were casting and, and I was literally walked into an office with my friend who was auditioning and I was hanging out and got that. But it was a crazy little accident. But what I was going to say is that in my head, when I got busy with all these things and certainly with Mad About You, which is 92 to 99, in my head, I was like, I, I got to get back to stand-up. I, I always meant to. And I, I sort of, so I was doing it steadily from whatever, 82 to... 90 and then when i started developing mad about you or 91 uh it, it just it just got put on the back burner wouldn't but not by design just because i was busy and distracted 
so I always had this thing, I gotta get back, I gotta get back to it. And it took me longer than I would have thought because I thought, well, I don't want to do it half-assed. I don't want to just go up and, you know, do my act from 15 years ago. Let's, let me, you know, write new stuff. And it always, every day I go, oh, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. It's like anything yet you intend to do in life. And then finally I went, okay, just, it's just like do me it. calling back my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. But, and, and I was just saying this to somebody else about all my major decisions in my life, when I think about it, were never because it is the time to do it, but rather, hey, you know what, Jackass, it ain't going to happen unless you do it. And it's like, it's time to, yeah, and now let's get married. Okay, now let's have a kid. It's like, I don't know, is this a better time? And for stand-up, it's like, just do it. And so about five years ago, I just sort of jumped in the pool or waded into the pool. And I went down to this club in, in, in L.A. where I it, comedy and magic club where i used to work and i came down and did five minutes and i was like oh and the and it was very odd because the audience was like oh we know that guy from tv yeah, okay nice to see you what are you doing here and uh stuff's okay it's not that funny i'm going yeah i haven't done this and and it took a long time it took a good year to get to the point where i felt i can perform and do a, an hour or so that's amazing like, yeah oh it goes away what what um what are the skills that you mm. think you know, like people think, oh, you need a good sense of humor and then you're a comedian. It's uh, not true at all. No. What are what are some of those skills well, that you had to like relearn? Well, first of all, I think all comics, I mean, some people say it takes 10 years till you figure out who you are, right? So, and that changes. So in 15 years since I've been on stage, oh, well, now I'm married and have kids, so I'm a different person and I've, and I've been on TV, so I'm a different person. So A, it's finding out who you are and what your voice is and what feels right to you and what... You know, sometimes you do a joke and go, okay, that's, that was full of shit. That was not me. You know, I got to laugh, but yeah, it doesn't feel right. And it is, it's writing, it's editing, it's, uh, it's memory. Like that part of my brain, it's like, wow, okay, yes, I can remember, memorize a script, but you're bringing it down, right? You're doing, you know, four minute scene or two minute scene. Oh, do an hour and it's not really memory because and then the other piece the last piece to kick in which was a skill only <laughs> usable in, in stand-up is that fluidity of, of going all right i'm going on this bit but my back of my brain i'm thinking of the next bit and you know what i'm no instead of that let's do number 24 let's go into that and then also leaving yourself open to oh let's explore that i don't even have a joke there but that struck me as funny and so the ability to sort of think on your feet and move, that was the last piece that kicked in. But there, there's sub-skills to that, though, too, right? Because you have to understand in microseconds what what is the crowd yeah. looking at. Yeah. You know, how does the crowd yeah. perceive you? How how are you feeling that day? Yeah, and it's a very, um, it's a very alive feeling. I mean, you're very... And that's the high. That's the charm. And I love it. And, and, and I didn't realize so going back to your original questions like when you know what is it that appeals to you it's like i i wasn't i as i said i had this vague thought of i, I want to get back into doing it but until i actually did it i didn't remember how much i was actually missing it i'm like oh well, i can just this yes a getting laugh is great and also the idea of a success to think of something at four and say it at eight and it gets a laugh, or it doesn't get a laugh. Well, it was funny when I said it to my friends, like, well, now it's different. They're not your friends. Now you have to write it. Now you have to make it a joke. Now you have to put it in a context. Like, well, you know what, that works That works well if you're talking about this subject, but maybe it really goes in that other area. So it's not a bit, you know, um, so you have to find find the truth, find that, find what is the context of, of, of each piece of material. Well, and, what do you mean find the context? Well, okay, uh... Some, for instance, you do a bit, okay, here's a sort of broad stroke example. You do a bit, if you're, you're walking on the street and uh, and you trip, right? So there's the joke. And so is it a, so one of one thought when you think, of where do I put this bit? You might go, oh, I have other bits about walking on the street. I go, well, no, but it's really about the tripping. It's about embarrassing. So it really goes with the chunk about being embarrassed. It's not about the chunk about walking on the street. So it's like, what? what's the real joke here? What is it about? And then sort of putting things together and, you know, and you put these little molecules together and then they become a little chunk and then moving, moving, uh, just moving things around, you know, and watching, it's sort of like watching children grow. When you watch a bit become 
find its legs and it becomes good. And it wasn't good in the beginning and now it's good. And there's also the opposite. There's some bits of like, well, that worked the first 10 times I tried it and now it doesn't. What has happened? Did I? Did it become less funny? What, and you, you sort of chase these uh, ghosts and that's exciting. It's frustrating, but it's exciting. I think that's an important one too because if something worked 10 times in a row and then it doesn't, is it the crowd? Are you trying be. to replay the last 10 times? Yeah, it could be. And, and sometimes you have to, it's sort of like taking apart a car. Not that I've taken apart a car, but I know people do it. Um, you have to deconstruct it and go, okay, what, 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 what is... And sometimes you're overthinking it. And it's like, uh, I know there are a couple of bits that I do that are long. There are, you know, five-minute hunks that have lived on stage exactly as I did them the first time, which is exactly how I first uh, said it or wrote it. And that's sort of an anomaly. That doesn't usually happen. And other times you, uh, you're chasing it. You don't know. And that's the mystery of it. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's the audience. Okay, that wasn't uh, a great audience. Sometimes it's, it's as subtle as, oh, I, I mumbled that one key word. Or I've looked at tape. And if I'm doing a short set and I'll watch a tape, I go, I was looking down. It's funnier when they can see your face. Don't look mm-hmm. down on that word. It's like, oh, there it is. That's why it didn't work. And sometimes it's just like, uh, uh, you know, everything has a life. And sometimes a bit just like it was good for a while and now you've outgrown it or you don't really inside really believe it's as funny as you thought it was or you don't believe it. Sometimes you just outgrow a bit. Um, You're beyond it. And I would say the stand-up has helped a lot in the acting. So take your role in Mad About You and take the role you play in this recent, you know, Amazon show, Red Oaks. The Red Oak show is brilliant. It's almost like Caddyshack in a way. I don't know how to how it's you. Caddyshack it. meets The Graduate. I mean, it's not it's not yes. as farcical as as Caddyshack, but it takes place at a country club. But it's a uh, it's a really sweet nostalgic piece, which is which was written by uh, Greg Jacobs, and, and which was based on his uh, a guy who, who that was his memory. He grew up and he was a young tennis pro at at a, at a country club, and uh, you did a lot of growing up at that point in your life. So you you play this um this role the president of the club Mr Mr Getty and even though it's a very different role than the role you play in Mad About You I think there's still the and and it's not a necessarily a funny role there's still a comedic influence in the kind of the commitment to the role the the slight inflections and nuances you use so that I don't know it's 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 yeah, funny to me watching it. You know, uh yeah, it's not like I'm 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 unrecognizable. Um it it it's certainly not playing me, but you you know, you hopefully you bring you bring yourself to the role. Even like you know, you think of like the greatest actors like oh, I like seeing De Niro in every role he's doing there's a big slice of De Niro because he's great and and yeah, there's no question he's a great actor, but yeah, I, that's that thing, that Robert De Niro thing. Well, there's that, uh, you know, there's that Al Pacino thing. There's that Denzel Washington thing. It's like, yeah, it's a great actor and he's different in every role, but there's enough of what you like at the core that brings you back. Um, I mean, getting the role was really fun because he gets to be, he's very self-entitled uh, uh, and, and, and pompous and, and uh unjustifiably arrogant. I mean, he's this big fish in his little pond. So it was great to, to you know, to not worry about being nice. It's like, oh, you get to be an asshole. You can... But it was well-written because you see pretty early on, like episodes two or three, where he, he wants to share with, with this, yeah. this tennis protege. Which was fun. Yeah, it, the, the, he comes off instantly as this gruff guy, the boss, and then you go, oh, he's actually cares about his daughter. He really cares for his wife. He really is trying to help this kid, even if he's doing it in a little bit of a arrogant way or for self... Uh, you know, selfish reasons. Do you, do you think because TV has become so granular, like there's all these outlets and some of these outlets like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, they can basically create a million shows. There's no there's no time that they're on. Right. Do you think that, um, I mean, obviously it's changed television. Uh, hardly, I mean, there's hardly any series I could think of now that goes like five, six seasons. How does that affect how you look uh, when when... When you look at a role that you're going to play or, or a show that you're going to create, what are you what are you thinking about? It's not going to well, last five seasons, and, and you don't know. And much fewer well, people. Well, also the see numbers it. are smaller. You know, now a season can be ten episodes or eight episodes, right. or in Johnny is seven. Um, you know, sometimes it, like I, I'm writing a, a screenplay now, and I had this idea for a story that I really liked, and I thought that's a movie. It's it's a it's a movie. It's not something that needs to be carried out and extended. 
Um, and then some ideas ago, well, that's a show. And like there's Johnny certainly felt like that's a TV show because it takes place at a TV show and there's a new thing every day. And uh, it also gives you the range, the, the ability to tell a story and, and watch characters grow over longer periods of time. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I think you vaguely plan, uh, let's say five years. And like, okay, is there, are there five years worth of shows here? Um, if so, then you got to, you know, then you, then you, then you can, you can answer that question when the studio says, well, why should we invest in this? Is it going to be a five, are there five years worth of shows? And, um, but it also has to work if there's only two, if there's only three, I mean, there's Johnny, I think it, as I said, it really plays in one season very well, but I, I can't wait to dig in and show how these characters, where they go in season two and three. Gosh, I hope there's a season two. Make it happen, man. Just uh, call Hulu and say, uh, you demand it. And, and, you know, do you feel like uh, all this movie talent now is moving into TVs? Like, I forget whether it was Red Oaks or There's Johnny, but you had the directors like Hal Hartley, yeah. Amy Heckerling. Yeah, it's on Red Oaks. A, and um, David Gordon Green, who did both. He, he, David Gordon Green was a producer on, uh, and director on Red Oaks, and he directed There's Johnny, produced that with me. I mean, Hal Hartley is like one of my favorite movie directors really? of all time. Yeah, he's great. And he's directing these TV episodes. Yeah, because they are, they're not, they don't, it's not like they're suddenly doing I Love Lucy. They're doing little movies. They're little half-hour movies, and, and then you put them, eight of them together it's like oh now it's a three hour movie it's, it really it does hold up what was interesting in Red Oaks is that each of the directors brought their own flavor to it and they're all a little different but somehow they all complement each other and they they're not jarringly different than uh, they're not breaking the frame they all work together let's stop to take a quick break we'll be right back I am so grateful to everyone who's been listening to this podcast. I'm 300 podcasts in now. It's almost unbelievable to me. This podcast has been all about peak performance, how the best people in the world in any field, doesn't matter the field, artists, athletes, writers, musicians, businessmen, entrepreneurs, astronauts, politicians, whoever, how all these people have achieved peak performance. I've learned so much from them. I hope you have as well. Um, but listen, what would really help me, please subscribe on either Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. This is so important. This is what keeps the show going. So please do it. It's the one favor I ask. So we keep this podcast totally free and I keep churning them out and we keep on getting the best guests. Um, Meanwhile, you can also check out show notes at jamesaltucher.com slash podcast, or you can sign up for my newsletter at jamesaltucher.com. Any way you want to do it, I am so happy that you read and listen and learn from what I'm also learning at the same time. So thanks again. So you said before, it seems like a lot of your career you were taking chances. Like, you got into stand-up, nobody wanted you to do it, like in your family <laughs> and so on. Then you took a chance, obviously, with, with TV. No one knows if a show's going to do well or not. You did great with Mad About You. Did the success of Mad About You, um, I mean, how life-changing was that? Obviously, it was incredibly life-changing, but what happened? <laughs> when, when did you realize, oh, my gosh, this is something big? You know, it... it you're right. You never know, and that's sort of just the uh, the mo of 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 anything, TV or, or films. You, you write it, or you have, and sometimes you 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 create something because you really want to see it, and sometimes you sometimes people go, well, what what would be a hit, and you aim for that, and it's like, and that was never my thing. I I mean, mad about you. I was approached by the studio. I was like, come create something for yourself, and I thought, well, the only thing I'd want to do which was what I was doing in my act was a lot of relationship stuff. And I thought, well, okay, is there a show about that? And make it really true and small and small in the sense of, you know, <laughs> uh, those little moments. And, and ultimately that's really what made it work. But so, you know, we made a pilot and, it, and I was really happy with the script and the pilot came out great and, and find meeting Helen and, and Helen Hunt and, and that relationship after we shot it went, wow, that, that felt remarkably uh, good and right. There was something that felt great about it. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised when it was picked up because 
even if it comes out great, that's not what necessarily determines going forward. It's like, what's the network need? Do they have a place for it? Do they, do they need a show about two, you know, a young couple? And so we got to make it, and suddenly you're in another world, and then, oh, you're making shows, and then it's the reality of that, oh my gosh, we got to come up with another episode, and another episode, and you got to do 22, 23. 162 episodes off. Yeah, yeah, and so, and then, then you realize, oh, then you were into that machinery where like, oh, the network is sending you to New York, and you're promoting it, and you're seeing it's, oh, it's, it's sort of a mind, uh, uh, it's sort of a trip to realize, oh, so it's not just for ourselves. This is being shown in Cleveland and Detroit and San Francisco and Seattle and everywhere. It's all, this is, this is on television. Okay. And that is a, is a sort of a, uh, a, a bracing reality. And then of course, you know, you start getting feedback and, and it felt good and it felt like we were doing good shows. And then you start seeing, oh, people are hearing about it and people are talking about it. And then you know, you go out in the world and like, hey, you're the guy from the show. It's like, wow, okay, that's a new world. So, and so it certainly changed our lives, and 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 uh, you know, it and it gave me a certain comfort level. But the the other reality is, all that aside, your job is exactly the same. Now you got to go write another script. You got to write another episode. Now you have to, and the same as stand up. It's like, okay, aim. Uh, what can we do? bigger and better and deeper and smarter and funnier and, and uh, you know, how do we keep making this fresh and new and, and for ourselves? And if you make it fresh for yourselves, like the bit, it'll probably ring true for an audience. And do you think the skills uh, translated in the sense that you're writing on stand-up, like what is the audience going to relate to? Does that help you yeah, it's a different craft an episode? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, you come up with an idea for an episode or, you, or something happens in your life, you go, oh, that's a funny area. So you bring it in and then you the writers will all sit around and people and you have other writers throwing in their ideas and they go, oh, you know what happened at home with my wife? Oh, and she said, oh, my husband. And then boom, you're throwing these, uh, it, it becomes something. It's a much more uh, collaborative process. And yeah, you, you start to, you have the audience in mind and like, okay, what story are we telling? And like, are they going to like this? Are they going to, is that going to seem like, eh, it's kind of not a cool thing if your character does that or she does that. But one of the other things, going back to when I, when I returned, got back into standup a few years ago, something that I had not anticipated that was such a uh, refreshing change was how non-committee it was that it, and, Every, and from a TV show to movies, it, everything is so labor intensive and people intensive, right? So, and and then conditional because you have an idea for a show, but then you have to pitch it, and then somebody has to buy it, and then by the time you they buy it and they make it, it's a thousand meetings and a thousand uh, nips and tucks, which are some help, some don't, but it can be years. In the case of there's Johnny from from initial idea till it was available to the public was fifteen years, so. Uh, Whereas stand-up is so immediate and that the lack of clutter was really refreshing and appealing to me. It's like, wow, I don't have, I can just say what I want and I'll, I can fall on my ass and I may not get a laugh, but that's all right. I, you know, I'll, I'll survive. Uh, and sometimes that's funny as you, you know, if you grew up watching Johnny Carson, you can get a laugh on how you didn't get a laugh can be funny. Um, I think that sometimes is a, another sub-skill of comedy, yes. which is like in between two failed bits, you can often have the funniest riff. Right. And as you said before, your brain is monitoring. So sometimes you do a bit and it misses. And you can, and if it's really glaring or if you offend it or you can just hear it and you go, well, maybe I should comment on it. And you can get a great laugh off of, wow, that really, I messed that up. And then they're fine, move on. Other times though, you go, you know what? It only failed in your mind. You were expecting this level of laugh and it got a little less, but they don't know that. They don't know what you were thinking. They're just going, oh, he's talking, right? So you have to make that judgment. Was that, did I just stumble or did they just, did I just not measure up to my own hopes and dreams for that joke? Or it could be they were low energy. They were waiting for a different type of punchline. Yeah, and you can't, and, and that's gauging an audience. Sometimes there's a great audience that's not particularly vocal. Doesn't mean they're not liking you. It just means, hi. <laughs> Okay, and that's just what they have to offer that day. And other audiences, they're like too electric, and you go, "Wow, okay, this stuff ain't that funny." But God bless you. I, I recently saw uh, Brian Regan in a talk, and he said um, his goal is to make himself laugh on the stage. 
and he doesn't care as much about the audience. How, how really? true do you think that is? It doesn't seem, uh, I don't know, Brian, but he's great. And he certainly seems like uh, almost a definition of a crowd pleaser. <laughs> like he does. Uh, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm sure he didn't say that in, in, in an arrogant way. There are people who can say that arrogant. Like, I don't care about them. It's like, well, yeah, you do, because <laughs> that's how you know if you're doing well, if they're laughing <laughs> and if they're showing up. Um, but yes, there is a there is a piece of that that's true. You you know, it, it's sort of a hollow feeling. Sometimes you hate yourself. You do a joke that I don't even like this joke, but they seem to like it. And um, you know, I, I'm having this new. There's a couple of bits that I've been playing with that I had this lofty uh, goal. I was like, I'm trying to take this somewhere and see if there's something. And when I say deep, I don't mean profound and dramatic or existential. Just like it's about something. I don't know, a little more interesting and and uh, a little more meat on the bones. And there are two bits, and I can't even remember what they are now, but my, I noticed it got a laugh very early on, but for the wrong reason. I was like, oh, you think I was meaning that? And I went, well, now I I guess that ship has sailed. I, I don't know how to get past. They're already laughing at A, so I can't even get to B, C, and D because it's like, you know, there's one joke that I was trying to go for something and it sounded vaguely sexual and they laughed at the sexual innuendo. I went, no, I didn't mean it. Ah, boy, okay. All right. Sorry. And do you then work with that? It's like, like a, you know, it's like cookie coming out of a machine. It's like, you know what? That cookie's not going to be any better. Wait for the next cookie. Just ship it, put it in a bag. They seem to like that. Um, well, I don't know. That's, a, that's, that's my dilemma. It's like, well, maybe do a little more homework. You know, I mean, the more, uh, the more uh, noble journey is like, you know what? I know that they're getting a laugh there, but let me see if I can, or maybe not even throw away that laugh, but... Don't stop there. What? Where did you want to go? And sometimes you have, sometimes you have the ambition, and sometimes you go, "I'll take it. That's fine. That's you know, that'll be that's a fine laugh. I'll take it." You know, um, this is a really bad example. I'll just give you one of my examples. Go ahead. Sometimes I'll do poorly, and I'll wait to see how the MC describes me, and they're usually funnier than me, and then I'll incorporate that into my next set. What they just said. Oh well, that. <laughs> guy is uh blah 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 well that's what i was saying before it takes you know you're just starting and it takes a long time till you know who you are up there i remember this is probably true of everybody you know you start doing it because you've seen other people do it right so you can't help but bring that uh with you on stage and i remember when i started i probably uh, you know, I was probably doing a very bad, not intentionally, but a bad impression of Woody Allen meets Robert Klein meets Dave, David Steinberg or something. You know, it's like it was all in there. Um, and then, you know, I, I would say for me, it was probably five, six years before I started stumbling onto a little bit more of my style, but also, oh, that construction seems to work for me. Or that that kind of uh, feels more truthful or that or that bit is more interesting. You know, and for me, it's like when I started talking about relationships, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for most comics, it's like, it's going to be funnier and deeper and better and more true just because that ma that matters. And it's you, like... You start having more fun on stage? Yeah, and also for me, it became uh, um, a place to work it out personally. Like, I know what I'm mad about you. I, it was a great luxury that we had this show. So you have a fight, you have an argument with your wife... Uh, that doesn't go well. Well, then you rewrite it, and then you can explore and go deeper. And by the way, you'll come up with a funny line when you have 20, you know, 12 writers. And then you, you got divorced. And then we got divorced. <laughs> but um, the the there were times that, especially this last round, when I was last couple of years, excuse me, and I would go out, and I would just, if something was like, I, I, listen, this is, this is the argument I got into with my wife today. And, I, and I'm not trying to throw her under under the bus, but I got to share. And will the audience laugh? So I'm going, go, okay, thank you. So well, like, I'm not crazy, right? That was, she was a little bit nuts there, but not me. And you get A, they're laughing because they're going, okay, there's another guy going through the same argument. We've had that. That's why they're laughing because they go, yeah, we recognize that. But on this, at the same time, I'm on stage going, thank you for laughing because now you're making me feel better. So we're both getting... Uh, the 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 validation of having somebody else agree with you, but it was a place. My what I was trying to say it was it, it was a place to work it out. That sometimes it's not just a com comedy bit. It's like, why is this so funny? But it, 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 suddenly a fight that was a, a genuine fight or an argument at home, um, you can laugh at it. Literally, I can do it on stage and go, okay, you know what? Now that I've talked about it, it doesn't bother me as much. But but now what I wonder is because there's a couple of sub skills there. Are <laughs> you? You found something you think is relatable because it was funny to you. Maybe the audience will relate to it. 
then do you try to construct a, a punchline or, or some sort of reversal? Or do you just go out there and using your own skills of inflection and crowd control and all these things you've built up in your decades as a stand-up, do you make it funny for the audience? I think it's both. I, 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 you know, a lot of times you have an idea, something makes you laugh, and your friend goes, oh, that's funny. And then you try it on stage, and go, well, it's not funny on stage. Or, you, or if it is, you haven't found out how to do it yet. Some, and that's, you know, some things only exist in one form. <laughs> it's a funny idea. It doesn't make it a funny movie. It's like a lot of, in, in L.A., you know, somebody sees something or hears something, like, oh, that'll be a great movie. I go, no, it's not a movie. It's just something that happened. Leave it alone. You know, at least a joke. Like, you see that sunset? It's a beautiful sunset. You know, that could be a movie. No, it's not a movie. It's just a beautiful moment. Leave it alone. So some bits should, some moments should just be funny observations, and sometimes there might be something there. And the skill, you know, you say, well, I don't know, can we, can you extend it? Can you put it with the other bits? And you suddenly, you know, I have another bit where I was talking about something like that. And you sort of explore it. I mean, as I was saying, a couple of bits that I have that in both cases are actually conversations slash arguments slash head scratching conversations that I've had with my wife that I literally brought on stage unadorned. I didn't write a thing and I got a laugh and I haven't, I haven't had the 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 uh, the nerve or the desire to to touch it. I'm like, you know what? It's working. That's exactly what happens. And in the back of my head, I'm going, I didn't make up a word of this. I swear. And but I knew it was a funny conversation. But it, it happens. It, well, the reason it was funny and the reason it was funny to share is like, yeah, because underneath that are all these layers. Like, well, this is what your wife is thinking. This is what you're thinking, and it relates to. So people in the audience are going, "Yeah, I so get that," and like, "Yes, we're with you," and that's a funny bit. And then there are other bits that go, "I just made this up. This is really silly," you know. And it's uh, so it's a mixture. But you find yourself. So when you, you're saying, you know, you find out what somebody else says about you, uh, yeah, that's informative too. You know, you, it takes you. And as I said before, I don't think it ever ends. I think you're constantly, hopefully, evolving, right? And you're constantly thinking, where does this go? And this worked for the first five years. And some of it is craft, and some of it is craft in performing and craft in writing. And then there's another part of it that is who you are becoming as a person. And probably not going to be the same at 20 as you are at 30 and 40 and 50 and 60. And it still seems like stand-up, the skills of that lend itself to everything, whether it's your acting, your writing. You know, I was thinking when I was watching There's Johnny, I was thinking about something, and, and Red Oaks, something Harold Ramis said about Caddyshack. He said Caddyshack was originally written for these original, th these kids who were caddies, but they weren't comics. So ultimately, the movie revolved around Chevy Chase, you know, Ronnie Dangerfield, Bill Murray, these people who are real comics and comedic actors because they they drove the film. Mm -hmm. Do you think with Red Oaks and There's Johnny, there's not a there's there's not as many actors there who are have comedic backgrounds. And I don't know what what were your feelings on that um, or what Harold Ramis said. Uh, well, I'm not I'm not sure what you. you, you yeah, sometimes you need comic actors to make stuff that's not funny. Funny, but like like you and Mad About You, you and Helen Hunt, of course, drive the the series. But yeah. you are the the comedic actor there. Well, we're, you know, but she, I think we're both comedic. I mean, she's, I mean, she does so much, you know, that's that's not comedic, but she's really funny, and this is why it worked. And this is why when I met her, I went, oh, she's gonna be, she'd be great for this. And I met her uh, uh, non professionally. We met. She was a friend of my wife's friend and uh and we had a dinner party and i is one when i was working on the script for mad about you and i left the party and i said to my wife i said what about her she goes she's great and it's like yeah because she's smart she's funny she's she was um just neurotic enough but obviously really blazingly smart and and uh thoughtful and and so it's like yeah that's going to be a fun marriage and 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 you know we and we over the years developed our own rhythm, um, our joint rhythm. That was the two of us, and there was a married couple that it felt right, and it's still to this day. If we, you know, get together, it's like we just kind of fall into that. It's because we've been friends for twenty five years. Um, but the the um, in in there's Johnny, you know, it there are certain comedy chops. Like the, the, we have uh, four actors who play the writers, and. Um, 
who play Johnny's writers, and they're all comics. Uh, 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 oh, I didn't know that. Andrew Schultz, uh, uh, Nate Smith, who was also in Red Oaks, and who, who plays like the very straight-laced leader of the group, and uh, Daniel Strauss. I don't think Daniel. I don't. I don't oh know. yeah, Andrew Schultz actually. Yeah, Andrew Schultz. He performs. Yeah. uptown. And then Daniel Strauss and David Hoffman. I don't. I, I think David Hoffman is in. in was in like uh, improv groups. And Daniel Strauss, I think as well. They weren't stand-ups, but they're really funny guys, and they all have very funny, uh, different, very distinctive flavors of funny. Andrew Schultz plays this very New York street guy, and he's just funny. And so... Plus Tony Danza's and a Tony Dan actor. Well, but it's interesting. Tony is really funny, and but it's, he's not trying to be funny. And, and in fact... He's hilarious, though. Yeah, because he's hilarious. Because He's playing a real guy. And so there are moments that kill me in the show where like when he's uh, there's a scene where he plays the the, the Johnny's producer Fred DeCordova and there's a scene where jo Jane Levy comes in Joy and she she comes to complain that she got the wrong paycheck she got her colleague's paycheck and I notice that he gets does the same job as me but gets twice as much and he's looking at her like yeah what's the and like he literally doesn't see it and she goes it's not fair and his head sort of cocks it's not what it's not fair what do you what do you, that that's not a thing. It's fair. And and what's funny is his confusion. The character is like, ah, this is all new. A woman saying that they should be paid more? I, I, wow, that's crazy talk. And he's not going for a joke. He knows funny in his bones. And there's there's one there's one scene a couple of times where he just has such great you know chops from all these years that he can go into that. And, and a couple of times we 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 used it. We said, yeah, just. That really crisp kind of sitcom trained timing, which still will still talking. Yes, it's still talking. Yeah, and he just has that in his bones. But so, like for instance, one of the writers, uh, Nate Smith, who who is he plays the in Red Oaks, he plays Chip, the golf guy, the golf caddy guy, yeah. and he's the head writer of our four writers, and he's really funny and like uh, in a lot of flavors. He's very physically funny, and um, but. And and he's witty and he's fast. The character, though, that we wrote for him is the straight-laced guy. And there are guys who are terrific comedy writers can sit down and write 15 jokes for Johnny Carson, but you look at them and there's nothing funny about them. Their brain works. They know how to write Johnny jokes. And he was, our the character was, he was the grown-up in the group. And I was, uh, I've been so impressed that he sat on his hands. His, he sat on his comedic chops to make this character work. It's like, I'm thinking, I know you got something funny to say, but your character wouldn't be funny. And... Ironically, to me, that's even more funny. Like when you see comics get together and somebody really says something funny, they'll go, yeah, funny. You know, it's not not that they're trying not to laugh. They're just going to another plane where they go, uh-huh, yeah, good, funny. And that was something that was more real and, and, and wanted to capture. But, uh, um, yeah, but you see Tony, you know, Tony Danza, who he's one of these guys. He's, I mean, he's so appealing because uh, he's he's just an easygoing guy, and people just I see you know I'm out in the street with him. People just flock to him. People recognize him, or even if you don't, just he's just an easygoing guy, and he's and he's a singer and dancer, and he's funny. But he's also just grown. You think over the years, and he's become this really gorgeous actor where he can do. He's not playing Tony Dan. He's playing this guy Freddie DeCordova, who has a very different speech pattern, a very different yeah. way of speaking, and he nails it. And and uh, and he's just, uh, it's exciting to see somebody, as again, over the years, just continue to evolve. And uh, and I, when the casting director, we, I had no idea who I was thinking of for this role, because he's the only one that's a real person. Fred DeCorda was the actual person. And the casting director called me and said, what do you think of Tony Danz? I went, that's brilliant. Wow. I had nothing, I didn't have anybody in mind, but that's brilliant. And luckily he said yes, because he's, he's great in it. You know, um, the shows are great. So there's Johnny, such a great. I, I didn't grow up watching Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Right. I was right. uh, Letterman, Leno, and whatever. But you, but, you, but I always. It's an interesting thing in talking about and promoting the show. Every people who love Johnny remember Johnny are intrigued because like, oh great, we love Johnny. But I keep having to remind people, you don't need to know anything about Johnny. It's, it's so true. It's nothing to do with Johnny. It's just the backdrop. If you like him, there it is. But if not. Uh, don't worry about it. I mean, it's a great sitcom. I want the second season. When do you find out if there's going to be a second season? Then you say sitcom. It's like, well, is it a sitcom? Is it? A, is it? People say it's a dramedy. Uh, it's a great show, is what I say. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I think uh, somewhere in the new year, because it's we're at the end of the year here. Um, 
it's really up to you. You have to get uh, everybody in America to watch There's Johnny, to get Hulu, and uh, hopefully they'll say uh, they'll do it. You oh, know, well, who, we're, we're we're trying, and then there's then there's Red Oaks, which you have a that's sort of done. In. Yeah, and that's that they that was the we just finished the third and final season, but. You know, again, they may say, well, let's just do like a few, you know, because it was left open-ended enough that we certainly could go back. But it's, it's you know, there's nothing wrong. When you get to do a couple of seasons of a show, it's like, that's enough. I don't need to stay with it for 12 years because sometimes 12 is too many. And then, of course, Stranger Things has become this iconic Netflix show right now. So that's huge. And then, um, you know, everything else you've done, you've, you've written several books. We haven't talked about those, Babyhood, Couplehood, Fatherhood. And... Uh, you should do uh, another a stand-up special on Netflix. Okay. I'm out there, you know, and I, I I think I'm doing more stand-up than I actually am because in my head I'm always thinking about it and, and I'll go out like every other weekend and then I heard somebody say talk about it. It was like some podcast and they were talking about they had seen my show and I go, you know, it was really fun because he doesn't do that many shows. Like, it's a special day. I went, I don't? I thought I do. It's like, no, I guess I don't. But, uh, yeah, but I, I that's that's always the most fun and, you know, I get to do in the middle of these great fun projects, get to um, go out and do stand-up in the middle. And and, uh, and and they all kind of ultimately feel like they're of a piece. You know, when I go out of the audience, when I go on stage, you know, there there's this relationship. Like, the, most of the people who are coming and buying tickets, like, they probably seen Mad About You. They probably read the books. And we have this sort of relationship. It's like, well, oh, let's jump into it. How you been? You know, it's like, and we, wow, we we got married when you got married, and now we're all a little older. And um, so there's this nice relationship, and, and uh, it's a nice feeling. Well, thanks again, Paul, for joining me on the show. Thank you. I, I highly encourage people to watch There's Johnny, Red Oaks, Stranger Things, read your yeah, books. I don't even know if you have to tell people to watch Stranger Things. They seem to have found it. Yeah, they found yeah. it. Okay, so watch There's Johnny. There's, there's where you there's want to put Johnny your, your promotional a value. Show. There's history. <laughs> there's great writing. You're not even in it until the, the the documentary portion, but it's a great show. I highly encourage people to 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 watch it. And thanks again, Paul, for, for coming on the show. Thank you, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks I, I for all you your diligent homework. And good luck, yes. I, I I look forward to the day that you don't have to wait to the, hear what the MC says about you. Yes. <laughs> you tell the MC what you think about him. How about that? Exactly. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks. And if you like this episode, subscribe to The James Altucher Show wherever you found us, and hope to see you again. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.